there, fiends. Holly here. Just Holly. Unfortunately, our dear Leslie has the dreaded COVID. Further proof that you can do everything right and still get sick. We also got ourselves a foot and a half of snow and two more days with the kids in the house. So doing things has been difficult to say the least. Thankfully though, Leslie is doing fine at home, feeling kind of fluish and achy, but nowhere near death's door. Those vaccines do work after all. She will be back on her feet to record our Tyler Hadley episode in a couple days, most likely. But because we have been on hiatus and I really didn't want to leave you all hanging, I put together a little something fun. Now, I know a lot of you are out there saying, but Holly, what can I do to help? I love helping. Well, while Leslie is on the mend, you can hit us with a little healing validation. Jump on over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify now and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. Support us on Patreon or share anything on our socials to your socials. You can also post about your favorite episode, drop our name wherever people are looking for new podcasts, tell your friend, tell your neighbor, tell that person who walks through your neighborhood all the time but isn't actually your neighbor. I guess they just like walking. <sighs> Leslie isn't here to tell me their name. So if you have a good one, drop it in the Facebook group. Then your friends and that walkie neighbor can become fiends and we can all hang out together. And since Leslie isn't here, I guess she has nothing to add this week, which is weird because, you know, she always has so much to say at this point. So all right then, on with the show. As some of you might know, I think like eight of you precisely, I used to do a weekly video segment called What the Friday. It lived on Instagram originally and then moved over to TikTok because... That's where the youths are. TikTok made the videos much shorter and more labor-intensive, though, because it is also a visual platform. Not that Instagram isn't, but TikTok requires quick, interesting visuals and has the attention span of a flea. Anyway, I loved doing the long format of these videos because they were essentially tiny episodes of the podcast filled with weird nonsense I couldn't fit in anywhere else. So this week, while Leslie heals, I decided to give you some of my favorite bits and bites. This will be kind of a roundup of insane facts about true crime and grisly history. It's a wild ride, and they don't all fit together to form one giant Voltron of a story or anything, but I love it, and I hope you do too. Oh, and if you like these little stories, please let me know, because if I hear from enough of you, I'll bring the videos back. Just for good measure, before we get going, I'll hit you with the opening. Hello fiends and welcome back to What the Friday, a weekly segment where I tell you three things I found in my research that made me say, what the Friday. So this first piece was one of the first episodes of this that I did, and it didn't really have a theme, so we'll just go right into it. We often discuss cases wherein the killer is known to be guilty beyond the shadow of a doubt. They will confess sometimes, but when it comes down to the trial, the defense will always try to prove the killer was insane at the time of the crimes. We see this time and time again so that when it comes down to the judgment, they're looking for leniency and time in a psychiatric hospital rather than a jail cell. This is especially important in cases involving murderers who are legally children. When you try a child as an adult, you indicate that they have an adult's sense of reasoning, and that just isn't true. Our brain continues to develop well into our 20s, but a teenager is at a point in their life where they are highly impulsive and think they're invincible. They cannot grasp the true gravity of their actions, the permanency of things just isn't quite there yet, and that's not because they don't want to know these things, it's because they simply don't have the hardware. This is rarely recognized in a court of law, but when it is, the results can be pretty astounding, as is with the case of teen family annihilator James Gordon Wolcott. 
On August 4th of 1967, 15-year-old James Gordon Walcott shot his mother, father, and 17-year-old sister dead in their home with a 22 caliber rifle. After he had finished this, he walked calmly to the road and flagged down a car, telling the occupants of the car that his parents had been shot. James was quick to confess, though, telling detectives that his family annoyed him. His sister had an annoying accent, and his father disagreed with his anti-Vietnam War opinions, and his mother chewed too loudly. And he gets a pass on that last one because I also want to murder people who chew too loudly. Close your mouth. It's not that hard. But I digress. James was tried as an adult, but deemed legally insane, with psychiatrists stating that he was schizophrenic and had been sniffing airplane glue at the time of the crimes. And this, this really is a deceptively named product, airplane glue. It's used for model airplanes, and inhaling it to get high was very common at the time. Now, when I hear airplane glue, I think that it's used for actual airplanes and wonder where a teenager is getting such a specialty item. But I digress. The craft store. It was easy. James was sentenced to time in a psychiatric hospital and was released just seven years later. James then went on to change his name to James St. James, no, not that one, and attended the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where he earned his doctorate in psychology. After college, James got a job as a professor at Millican University, where he teaches psychology to this day. Families of students have expressed concerns about James, but the university stands by him as he is an excellent professor and well-liked. He's also a well-adjusted individual, having overcome his traumatic past. So technically, in Illinois, you can study psychology under a man who murdered his entire family in cold blood. I find that interesting not only because he's out and about and you could technically take one of his classes, but also because in this one instance, an adolescent being tried as an adult actually worked in his favor, simply because of his insanity defense and not claiming he was just a child who, you know, couldn't make decisions for himself at the time. So I find that very interesting, and it doesn't happen very often. In fact, I can't think of a single other case wherein something like that occurred. Usually it is far more beneficial to deem someone a child, and then they will not face consequences that are quite as strong. Anyway, on to the next. In researching more modern cases, we have come across a couple famous ones that were solved or significantly helped along by devoted web sleuths and roly office chair detectives. So let's start this new year off by throwing a few positive moments into the mix. And these were all so great that I'm giving you guys all three of them. Remember fiends, you too can make a difference. One, in 2013, Tumblr user 18-year-old Jackie Rosas successfully prevented a suicide. Jackie, who lived in Cathedral City, California, followed the Tumblr account of a 16-year-old girl who frequently spoke openly about her depression. One day, she posted that she saw no other options but to end her own life. Seeing this, and knowing well enough to take it seriously, Jackie jumped into action. She first called a suicide hotline, but without the girl's last name or any indication of where she lived, it was impossible to find her, let alone help her. Not being one to give up easily, Jackie then contacted the Cathedral City Police, who showed the photo of the girl in danger to the local high school assistant principal, Karen Dimmick, who obviously didn't know who this random internet girl was, but did know a thing or two about teenagers and the internet. Karen, who, by the way, really helps to rub the tarnish off that name, then tracked the girl's Tumblr account to a Twitter account, 
which contained the girl's last name. And as it turns out, she had recently posted about the UHS marching band, which Karen then traced all the way across the country to Union County, New Jersey, and UHS would be Union High School. Karen then passed this information on to the Cathedral City Police, who contacted the Union City Police. By this time, it was 1.30 a.m. over here on the East Coast, but the police dutifully still rushed to the girl's home and found her, as it were, unconscious on the floor of her bedroom. She had taken an overdose of sleeping pills, but EMS, who were right on hand, were able to revive her. She was taken to the hospital for further treatment, and ultimately her life was saved all thanks to the power of the internet. Well done, Karen and Jackie, and both police departments. We salute you. Two. In 2001, a retired trucker named Ronald Telfer noticed a seemingly abandoned plastic bucket at a Missouri truck stop, which seems pretty inconsequential, unless you're in the market for a good bucket, and who isn't these days, am I right? After passing by the same bucket numerous times, Ronald figured that it probably didn't belong to anyone, and he could really use a bucket like that to feed his pigs, so he grabbed it and brought it home. When he got home, Ronald emptied the contents of said bucket, which appeared to be animal remains set in concrete. An odd sight, I would imagine. Alarming in my neck of the woods, to be sure. But maybe in rural Missouri, it's common to cement your pig bones? I don't know. So Ronald, rather unfazed, left this chunk of rock full of remains alone. However, over the next couple of months, the concrete eroded enough to reveal not pig bones, but a human head! Scarier than pig bones, to be sure. Subsequently, through photos of the partially decomposed head online, because Ronald gave it to the police, and this clearly made local and national news, and an entry on a missing persons website, a dedicated web sleuth named Ellen Leach was able to make a connection. The head was very clearly that of Gregory May, who detectives would go on to find out had been violently murdered and dismembered by his best friend, Doug DeBruin, over Gregory's substantial collection of valuable Civil War artifacts. De Bruin was subsequently convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison, which, being as they were both pretty old guys, wasn't very long, but still, it's the principle that matters. Three, this wasn't the only time that a body would be identified through an internet picture. Strangely enough, in this era of ubiquitous internet, constant social media documentation, and 24-hour news cycles, it happens more often than you might think. In 1979, a woman named Paulette Jaster disappeared without warning or trace from a small town in Michigan. Paulette, a former high school honor student and basketball player, had been suffering from mental illness, according to her family, that seemed to be getting worse and worse with age. Then, for 35 years, Paulette's family had no idea what happened to her. She seemingly disappeared completely without a trace. That is until 2014, when forensic anthropologist Sharon Derrick received an online tip about the body of a Jane Doe found in Houston, Texas, back in 1980. The Jane Doe had been killed in a fatal hit-and-run accident, but with no identification, no dental records, fingerprints, or x-rays on file, the Harris County Police had no way of identifying her. And this was probably because she was from 1,300 miles away, but they had no way of knowing that at the time, so they buried her in a grave marked only with her case number. 
Eventually, Sharon was able to confirm with old autopsy photographs and the distinct pattern of her freckles that the body was that of Paulette Jaster, whose family was contacted and then confirmed the match. The man responsible for Paulette's death had been caught, arrested, and convicted of manslaughter back at the time when the crime occurred. While Paulette's family was certainly devastated to learn of her confirmed death, they took comfort in both the closure of knowing and the fact that justice, blind to who she was or not, had already been served. Paulette's grave is now adorned with a stone containing her name and information. So this next little story comes from a set I did about wrongful convictions. A lot of the time, police will suspect someone to be the suspect in a crime simply because of the way they react to the event in question. And while sometimes this is revealing, like say in the case of Chris Watts, sometimes it's simply not. Everyone processes grief and shock differently. And just because they don't react in the way you think you would does not mean that they are hiding something. On September 7th, 1988, 17-year-old Long Islander Marty Tencliffe walked into his dining room for breakfast only to discover his parents lying on the floor covered in stab wounds in pools of their own blood. His mother was dead. His father, who was in a coma, would die shortly after arriving at the hospital. Upon discovering the situation, Marty called the police and started giving his father first aid. When police arrived, Marty immediately told them he thought the person who did this was his father's business partner, who owed him half a million dollars. So what we have here is a child in shock trying to immediately be of service, and he offered a very, very valid potential suspect for this crime. But what the police saw was a man not crying over the death of his parents, and so they immediately took him in for questioning, completely ignoring the valid explanation Marty had given. After hours of getting nowhere, a detective told Marty that he had called his father at the hospital and that his father said Marty himself had committed these crimes. Now, in reality, at this point in time, Marty's father was dead. But shocked beyond reason and trusting his father more than he trusted his own memory, Marty confessed. He spent 19 years in prison before a growing body of evidence set him free. Incidentally, it was the business partner that owed him a half a million dollars, so had they just listened, this would have been very avoidable. Okay, these next three bits make up my absolute favorite What the Friday, in which I explored the truth behind my favorite childhood books, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, the whole trilogy, by Alvin Schwartz. Ugh, I could hug Alvin Schwartz for making me the ghoul I am today. That is, if I didn't deep down really, really hope that he was a ghost. How cool would that be if a ghost wrote those books? Oh, I would love that. Anyway, one. Even if you haven't read the scary stories to tell in the dark trilogy, you will probably recall the story of Jenny, the girl with the green ribbon around her neck. In my schoolyard, before I read the books, the ribbon was red and still other versions make it black, but Jenny always wore a velvet ribbon choker and her husband begged her to tell him why, but she just wouldn't. And she never, ever, ever took it off, not even in her sleep. One night, her husband decided to take it off while she slumbered just to see what she was hiding. Maybe it was a regrettable tattoo? When he did, he revealed a large crimson gash on her neck and watched her head roll away, free from her body. In the Alvin Schwartz version, when Jenny grows old and sick, she tells her husband to remove the ribbon, as she is apparently ready to die, 
and when he does, her head drops to the floor like a wayward cantaloupe. Which, ooh, what an exit. 1,000 points to Jenny. While there is clearly no truth to someone holding their head on with a choker, this story contains more than one old-timey cautionary tales that I never really realized. First of which is that chokers have their own history. Some of them are linked to fancy ladies, but more often, historically speaking, they were the call sign of a sex worker. The ribbon is hiding a secret Jenny is keeping from her husband. When her husband ultimately discovers what Jenny has been hiding, both of their lives are ruined. Because of this, some people say that the origins of this story are the cautionary tale about marrying sex workers. Or uh, rather, that they are a cautionary tale about marrying sex workers, so this was meant to warn people. Don't do that. Not nice. But back to the fancy ladies. Red chokers specifically enjoyed a brief run of popularity following the French Revolution. Ladies would wear them as a symbol of solidarity to those who lost their heads to the guillotine. While I'm not sure what the message would be in that case, you can feel free to interpret the symbolism as you see fit. But it does seem awful funny that her head fell off and she was wearing a choker. By far the scariest of the stories to tell in the dark, in my humble opinion, was Harold. You know, the charming children's story about the sentient haunted scarecrow who dries the skin of his human victims out in the sun. Wow, I really read that when I was like eight. That does explain me a lot, doesn't it? Anyway, while there aren't any true tales of scarecrows skinning humans, there is an instance of a field of them luring over a hundred humans to their death. In 1914, the first year of World War I, the French forces were on the move, but so were the nearby Baden Regiment of German soldiers. Visibility on the field was very low due to a dense fog that had settled in. The French cleverly realized that this could be used to their advantage. The men rushed into a nearby field and, gathering sticks and other field debris, made scarecrows that, from a distance in the fog, looked like helpless soldiers. They placed their caps on the sticks, scarecrows, and the men themselves hid, ready to ambush the enemy. A few of the French were sent ahead and lured the German troops to the field. At the sight of the scarecrow figures, the Germans charged. As soon as the Germans were well into the trap, shots rang out from three sides. Over 100 men of the Baden Regiment were killed. And as the war went on, scarecrows and trench dummies became more and more common as a way to trick the enemy soldiers. Three, while I always found Harold the scariest, I think the story that caused the most lasting nightmares and phobias was The Red Spot, a story about a young girl whose little pimple turns into a boil that erupts with spider babies. 100% of the people who have read it have looked up, quote, can a spider lay eggs in my face? And I'm gonna save you the trouble. No, they cannot. Spiders are not parasites and cannot live in the human body. Do some of them have venom that can eat a hole in your face? Absolutely, namely the brown recluse. Are there other parasites that can burrow under your skin? For sure. Do not Google the botfly, you will regret it. But those are other stories for another time. What I'll say for now is that no, you will never have a face full of spiders. So this What the Friday came uh, right before the final installment of our three-part exploration of Jack the Ripper. Uh, so we had already aired two. This is before the third. If you are interested in the Ripper case or have performed even the most cursory of Google searches on it, you will know that a few years ago, a man claimed to have purchased a shawl that belonged to Catherine Eddowes. And when it was eventually DNA tested, it was discovered that one of the least thought about suspects a local barber with a pronounced psychotic disorder 
was discovered to be a match to the DNA left on the shawl. And Sweeney Todd fans the world over rejoiced. Because of this, I have mused on both currently released parts of our coverage that it made sense that the Ripper was a barber because he would have had minor surgical knowledge. And this may have confused you, so let me clear that up. First of all, I was wrong. Not about the surgery thing. Barber surgeons were very real. No, I was wrong about the fact that a barber of that specific time would have had surgical knowledge because all barbers in England were stripped of their surgical licenses as of 1800, and we don't think the Ripper was a 100-year-old man. But why would a men's hairstylist ever have license to carry out minor surgeries? Well, I will tell you. One, in the very, very olden times, and we're talking about the Middle Ages, one of the most common kinds of medical practitioner was the barber surgeon, a man who could cut your hair, shave your face, pull your tooth, amputate your arm, drill a hole in your skull, and bleed your demons out all from the relative comfort of his chair. That's right. Barbers had the right to perform surgical acts, and doctors uh, were considered to be below them class-wise, like position-wise, like a barber was a better job than a doctor. And this was considered to be the case all the way up until the dawn of the 19th century. Some of these barber surgeons were incredibly skilled and could pull teeth and amputate limbs with greater speed and accuracy than the men who got to perform these acts in an operating theater. Some, not so much. But I think it's always a mixed bag when there are no standards being enforced. In those days, if a tooth was bothering you, the most likely cure would be to yank it out. And why go to a dentist if a barber could do that in seconds flat for a fraction of the price without the terrifying medical gag? Look them up, folks. You won't be disappointed. Two, so we covered teeth pulling. What else could a barber do? Well, they could amputate a gangrenous limb in a hurry. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. A barber could also perform a torturous process called trepanning, also called trefining or tree panning, if you want to get real clunky with the pronunciation. And this was a procedure where a drill would be used to make a circular hole in the skull to let out demons or headache gremlins or more frequently to stop seizures. Did it work? Well, no, not really. Not unless the patient actually had a buildup of excess fluid around their brain and even then there was still a giant hole in this person's head in a day and age where there were no antiseptics, which is not a super great idea, but a lot of people did survive it, to be honest, and I find that very surprising. But we will get more into the history of trepanning at a later date. It has lots more to talk about. Barbers, because they had a razor, were also called on for routine bleedings as a matter of convenience. Bleeding was a cure-all for a really, really long time, as medical professionals thought that illness was in the blood, and if they could get the sick blood out, well, then the unlucky sufferer would be all better. People went so far as to be bled as preventative health maintenance as well, kind of like teeth cleaning. We know that's not super healthy now to, like, voluntarily part with your blood unless you're giving it to a worthy cause, but back in the olden times, some folks kind of liked the lightheaded feeling blood loss gave them. And since they associated anything that felt good with being actually good for you, like drugs were good for you too, some folks just bled out a bit on the regular for good measure. And if that was your thing, the local barber would gladly oblige. Three, this brings us to the mythology of ye old barber pole. The barber's pole started out as an instrument he would give customers to grip onto so their veins would pop for bleeding, kind of like a tourniquet of sorts. The myth goes that the pole they used for gripping was also used to dry bloody bandages outside the shop, and then people got so used to associating this grisly sight with a barber shop that they adapted this symbol into the modern barber pole. 
And that's a really neat story, but it's only partially true. The medieval barber pole was the gripping instrument, so that's true, and it was topped with a brass bulb that held leeches for bleeding, and the base was said to be a basin to catch blood in the case of non-leech bleeding. It's a lot of bleeding in the barbershop. After the formation of the United Barber Surgeons Company in roughly the 1300s in England, a statute required the barber to use a red and white pole and the surgeon to use a red pole. The white on the barber's pole did not signify bandages, but tooth pulling. The white was for teeth. Well, why do you sometimes see a blue stripe? Well, if you were in Amsterdam, it was because the blue signified haircutting services. The red was bleeding and the white tooth pulling. And if you were in America, well, we just like putting our colors on everything, whether it makes sense or not. Either way, if you were a barber, you really wanted that fact advertised as you surely did not want to be mistaken for a mere surgeon. You see, back in those times, as I mentioned before, surgery was seen as filthy grunt work and a barber was paid far more money and was far classier than your average surgeon. So the white stripe on the pole and then subsequently also the blue was kind of a mark of status. Oh, how times have changed. And those are just a few things that I found in nearly two full years of research that made me say, what the Friday? Leslie will be back soon, and so will our episode on Tyler Hadley. Until then, fiends, stay safe, stay warm, and stay fascinated by the darkness. Because if it wasn't for all of you and your love and validation keeping us young and strong, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more.